Thanks, Father, for the afternoon. Uh, We've been grateful for these two days and grateful to gather uh, many people from many different churches, even among the speakers. So thankful for these dear brothers, uh, faithful servants of yours who love Christ, been shaped by His Word, and uh, different brothers, different ecclesiologies in some cases, uh, different places, uh, yet all serving and working uh, with a high view of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures and the Spirit um, and loving your people and wanting to shepherd them well. And thank you for these dear brothers who have served us well. And uh, thank you for the fellowship that we've enjoyed with one another uh, these days, providential conversations that you've given us uh, after sessions, in breaks, over lunch, Um, perhaps at hotel rooms if we're staying locally and just engaging in conversation, sharpening one another. It's been a blessing to us and we thank you. And I pray that you would use these things uh, in our lives, these truths and realities that that we ourselves would be shaped. uh, If change and transformation is going to happen in the church, it needs to start with me. And so would that be the case for all of us as we contemplate these things? And then uh, would you also be pleased to use us uh, to shape and mold and help others as well in our local churches? And uh, might we be refreshed, even as we're speaking about some technicalities today about the counseling process and what it looks like in the counseling room. Uh, These are truths about you and how you've shaped the world. And uh, would that invigorate us as we prepare our hearts for worship tomorrow? And might we not disconnect the two, but see them as integrally uh, related to one another? And so we commend our time to you. Would you guide us in this hour, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to keep talking here about key elements for biblical counseling. These are the things that make biblical counseling biblical. These are the things that set us apart. This is what we're trying to do. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear these key elements as, as being, this is what you need to do in the first session, and that's true, but it is also what you do in every session. We're always doing all of these things in every counseling session. This is what makes us biblical. And so my joy, excuse me, is to think with you about what biblical instruction or teaching looks like and what giving homework looks like. As we think about teaching, there are two mistaken ideas about biblical counseling instruction. One idea is that counseling is all instruction and only instruction, and and so that everything we're doing in the counseling room is just teaching. Uh, that's not that's not accurate. We're doing all the other things that we've talked about as well. We're giving hope and we're gathering data uh, and we're discerning problems, etc. So we're doing all of those things all the time in the counseling room. Counseling isn't just biblical counseling is not just about instruction, though it is about instruction. Um, we also want to affirm that counseling is not devoid of instruction. So some people will say, well, counseling is just simply somebody listening to someone's problem. In fact, that was my experience. That was my training. I was trained at a, another seminary in another place, another city, um, another part of the country. And my counseling training went like this. When somebody comes in for counseling, this is, this is one semester condensed into 30 seconds. When someone comes for counseling, what you do is uh, you ask questions and then you reflect back to them what's going on. 
So, thank you for coming today. Uh, what's your problem? Oh, my wife and I, we're just, we're just constantly arguing. Oh, you're constantly arguing. Yeah, we're like fighting and it's, it's like really bad. I mean, it's even, I hate to say this preacher, but I, we even use profanity. Wow. So like you argue to such a degree that you even use profanity against each other. And you do that for an hour and you take $125 and you say, go and be, be, be warm and be filled. And even when I was doing that, I realized this is folly. There's no advantage to helping someone if all I'm doing is listening. It's got to be more than that. So counseling is not devoid of instruction, but it's not also only instruction. So as we think about the nature of counseling, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about the reality that all instruction should be biblical. And by that we mean that it is not integrated with secular theory. We're talking Bible. This is the source book. This is God's revelation. This is the one who is self-existent, who is dependent on no one and nothing and created all things and told us about himself and about the world that he created. And everything we need to know is in this book. And so that's the source book that we use. We don't need to go into the world to understand what mankind is like and what the solution for mankind's problems are. God's told us in this book. The Bible is infinitely practical. Um, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. One of the things that's been a joy to me is um, over the last dozen years or so, I've been preaching through Psalm 119, one stanza, twice a year. I actually started doing it one stanza once a year. So every year at the beginning of the year, I do a, a sermon on prayer and a sermon on scripture and a sermon on evangelism or something related to culture. Um, and I started doing Psalm 119, and I did the math about when I was going to finish. And I think I was going to finish at like 68 or 69, and I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I need to pick up the pace. <laughs> so I, for several years, have been doing one sermon in January and then one in the middle of the year on Psalm 119. This year is an exception, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But um, I have one stanza left, and it's going to be January next year. It's the last stanza. It's been invigorating to just go through this psalm, 176 verses, about the nature and the character of the Word of God and what the Word of God does. And um, several years ago, as I was preaching, I just saw not just this is what the Word of God is, but the implications of the word and what the psalmist is saying about the word he says because this is the word this is what you need to do and so I just made a chart of all the stuff that the psalmist tells us that we need to do it's about 40 or 50 I, I didn't count it I don't have it enumerated but let me just read some of the things that he tells us to do um, he says to be in awe of God, to behold, to look on, to see something, to believe in, to be, uh, to understand that you are chosen or to choose, to cling to, to be comforted by, to consider, to counsel with, to delight in, to esteem, to hate false ways, to hate falsehood, to incline your heart, to keep, to learn, to know, to loathe the treacherous, to long for 
God and His Word. To love, to meditate on, to not be ashamed of, to not forget, to not forsake, to not turn astray from, do not turn from, observe, obey, praise, worship, regard, reject wanderers from, rejoice, to have joy in, remember, run after, seek, sing, speak, tell, be, uh, enjoy the, the sweetness of the taste, to give thanks, to treasure, to trust, to turn to, to wait, to weep, to be zealous for. Is that applicable? Yeah, brothers. It's the source book of everything that we have. It's intensely practical. Again, I think I mentioned this yesterday. It doesn't tell me how to reboot my computer when my computer uh, doesn't boot up on Friday morning, but it does tell me how to respond. Um, It doesn't tell me um, how to fix my wife's problems when she's overburdened with someone, but it does tell me how to be compassionate towards her, to be understanding, to be tender, to be gentle, etc., over and over. So the Bible is tremendously, uh, tremendously applicable to us, intensely practical. It is comprehensive. We have Second Peter one three. Everything we need for life and godliness. Oh, wait a minute we have a few things that we need for life and godliness. Is that right? Everything. If there is something that you need in a situation to demonstrate the godly character that God has granted to you through Christ, it's in this book. It's here. You don't need to go outside these walls. You don't need to surf the internet. You don't need to pick up Newsweek magazine. You don't need to go to Fox News or or Wall Street Journal. Uh, You don't need to go to the latest psychiatric journal. You have what you need in every situation to live life in a way that honors and pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in that book. It's intensely comprehensive. One implication of that, brothers and sisters, if you're going to disciple and if you're going to counsel and people are going to come to you with problems, you need to know the book. And you need to know where the answers are. They're here, but you need to know them. One of, one of the favorite things that I get to do is people will come on the first meeting and I'll just be gathering data. I'm asking all these questions and I'm keeping notes, right? And so I'm keeping notes about what they're saying and I'm keeping a list of the things that I'm hearing that might be issues in their lives. And at the end, I'll read through the list. You know, it's seven, eight, nine, ten things. And I'll read through the list and I said, is, is that why you're here? Yeah. I'm pretty messed up, aren't I? Yeah, you're part of the human condition. That's all of us. I've got bad news for you. That's a pretty, that's a pretty extensive list. I have good news for you. The Bible has answers for every one of those things. And I know where the answers are. Right? But you have to know that which means you've got to be a student of this book that is comprehensive. The Bible is also trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Again, we find this all throughout uh, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 128. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. You have made a precept, a command, a, a judgment... You've made an evaluation about everything. It's right, it's true, it's dependable. Uh, You can can trust it. Um, Because it is trustworthy, 
And because it is the truth, Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Where do you go for the truth? You go to the book. You go to the one who has revealed what we need to know in this book. And that means that that book is the only suitable means for sanctification for our counselees. Um, You can trust it. It will do you right. The Bible is also knowable. So God, we talked about this briefly yesterday, God is exalted. He's transcendent. And because of our finiteness, there are things about Him that are unknowable to us. We cannot know Him. In fact, even think about His omniscience. What does omniscience mean? All-knowing. He knows everything. You can't even define omniscience because you don't know enough to know what He knows to be able to say this is what it is. And you never will. Because you're always going to be a created being, a glorified one in heaven, but you will be a created being and you will not be omniscient, though you will know a whole lot more than you know now. So, um, God is omniscient and beyond us, and yet He has revealed Himself to us to make Himself knowable to us. We will at times struggle to know Him because of our finiteness, yet this book is the source of what we need to help people, to minister to them, to comfort them. So, when we come to the Scriptures, we're coming to it from that perspective. We want to use it in that way. So our our instruction should be, I will say, thoroughly biblical, overtly biblical. Our counselee should always walk out with the understanding, I have had the Word of God ministered to me to instruct me. This isn't Terry's idea. This is God's idea. And I never want them confused about who's talking. I'm merely the mouthpiece for the Lord. I'm not the mouthpiece. Right? It's not me. It's not my wisdom. It's God's wisdom. I'm always pointing them there. Because this is truth, and it comes from God, instruction should also be biblically accurate. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, all our Awana students know, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Oh, the Bible is really easy. You just open it up and you just start reading and talking, right? Um, No, it's working hard. You're a workman. When you're preparing and you're studying, you're working and you're slaving over that text, you're mining away at it. You've got the hammer and the chisel and you're chipping away at it and you're diving deep into it to understand And it is laborious. There are days when I leave, I usually listen to a book or a sermon or something when I'm driving home. There are days after being enslaved with this, it's like I just need something to saturate my soul and I turn on some music on my drive home because I'm just so weary mentally, right? That's what it is. It's, It's a workman job. You've got to work at it. 
So you want to be biblically accurate. You want to labor over the text. That means you need to know the, the, the meanings of important words and biblical and theological concepts. So one of the favorite passages I like to use with folks, I'm often in Psalms. And particularly, I'm often in Psalm 42. So the psalmist says 42.5, and this gets repeated three different times in Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him for the help of His presence. And so I say to my counselee, well, I sure hope things get better for you. You need to be more hopeful. You need to, you need to hope that God does something good for you. And you need to, you need to hope that it, it'll be better. And maybe someday it will be better. Is that what I say? That's not what hope means. What does it mean? Be confident. Hope in God doesn't mean, well, I hope when I get home and check the mail today that there's a check for $1,000 in there. I don't know who would send me that, but I hope there is. That's not what that is. Hope in God means rest in Him and be confident in Him. Why? Because He's God. And in fact, be confident in the fact of the help, at the end of this verse, of His presence. Be confident in Him that you will again praise Him. Though things are hard now, one day in eternity, you will praise Him unrelentingly and unendingly. And you need to find your confidence, not in changed circumstances now, but in what you will be in eternity and what He will do for you in eternity. That's confidence. That's not wishes and dreams. And so we need to understand biblical language. We need to know the important concepts and the important theological terms. We need to understand the meaning of a verse and a passage within its context. So you're studying the Scriptures and you come to a passage, and I use this passage all the time, and undoubtedly you will as well. Matthew chapter 7, one of the first things I will often use with my counselees. Uh, Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who built his house on a rock, and the rain came, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And I pull out my whiteboard, and I have a, a big whiteboard in my office. I hang it up on my bookshelf, and I start drawing. I'm a terrible drawer, but I draw a house built on a rock. And, you know, we put hurricane clips and all kinds of stuff in that house. And then we build another one, and it's on the sand. And we crash the one, and we keep the one standing. And then I ask the question, what's the rock? What's the rock? What's the rock? Read the text. What's the rock? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the man who built his house on the rock. The rock is not Christ. One of my daughters used to say, you know, I'd ask a question, Daddy, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. Jesus is not the answer to that one. What will... What will hold your life steady is hearing the Word of God and doing what it says. That's the rock. So before you go to that text and say, well, Christ is the rock, I mean, that's, we all, and that, that's true in other contexts. That's absolutely true. But in that text, the rock is not Christ. The rock is obedience to the Word of God that's been revealed to us. And so... You need to study the text. You need to know the context. What's actually going on in this particular passage? Uh, And we need to know it well. We need to interpret every passage in harmony with the the rest of Scripture. 
So uh, Ephesians 5.23, Wives, submit yourselves to the husbands as, un- as to your husbands as unto the Lord. So a wife needs to always submit to her husband in every, in every situation, right? In fact, he says in that passage, in all things. So she always needs to submit in everything, right? Uh, you're hesitating, aren't you? If he's following Christ. So she cannot follow him into disobedience. She cannot follow him in places where she would be disobedient to Christ, rebellious of Christ. Can she follow him if it's not her preference? Absolutely. This isn't about preference. This is about rebellion. But we need to look at that text and we don't say to a wife, if he tells you to do it, you got to do it. Uh, no. Uh, the general principle, yes. But we also understand the full context of Scripture, right? That we understand there are some caveats there. And so we want to bring those to bear on that particular situation. Um we want to become familiar with the God-given purpose for portions of Scripture that you are teaching. Um, yeah, we don't have time to tease this out, but just understand different, different passages have different implications, different purposes, and we need to be attentive to those things. Um, Biblical instruction must be Christocentric and evangelical or evangelistic in emphasis. The goal of our instruction is to make people like Jesus Christ. The goal of our instruction is to get them to Christ. It's not to fix their problem. It's to help them to see their problem in perspective of Christ and in relation to Christ and be submissive to Christ, whatever their circumstance, whatever their situation. And we want to use instruction that is action-oriented. So Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, He says, go into all the world, right? Baptizing, teaching, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And when He says observe, He doesn't mean look at. He means observe, keep, obey. So we're teaching people how to obey the Word of God. We're not just filling their heads. That is part of it. We do want mind renewal. That's a big part of what you're doing. But you're showing them what mind renewal looks like. So how does that walk across the street? What does that look like when you walk into Kroger over there or H-E-B? What what does that look like when you take your kids to the park? What does that look like when you talk to your mechanic who ripped you off $300 on your bill? It has a way that it acts. And we're teaching them to observe the commandments of God in practical ways so that they are obedient to Christ. That's the goal of instruction. So when we're teaching them, we're not just saying, hey, here's this neat Bible lesson. We are taking that truth that we're teaching them and we're connecting it directly to their lives. I, I love preaching. I love doing stuff like this. 
But the problem with one of the, one of the limitations of preaching is it's like being in this room, right? It's, you're in this room and I, and I'm just throwing out these ideas and some generalized ways of applying them and it's like the lights in this room, I'm just giving a broadcasting of light to a general situation and hoping it connects with you. But in the counseling room, I know your problem and I have a laser beam right on you and your problem. And I'm taking that truth and I'm taking the laser beam and putting it on your life and your heart and helping you to see what that truth looks like in your life. And it's so much fun to help them see this is not just a Bible lesson. This has transformative effects in my life. And I know some of the ways that that looks like in my life. We're helping them to make those connections. We want to uh, emphasize all three facets of sanctification. So you've heard about this uh, this weekend. We want to talk Ephesians 4:22 to 24. We want to talk about what this looks like in putting off. So what are the things I need to stop doing that are unrighteous? How can I be renewed in my mind? So how ought I to be thinking about these things in new ways? And then what is the corresponding act of righteousness that mitigates against that which I'm putting off? So I need to put something off and I need to find the righteous replacement for what I'm putting off to put on, start acting in a new way. And all that happens, the putting off and the putting on happens only because I've got a new way to think about my life and circumstance. And again, putting off and putting on can't happen until we have been renewed in our minds. So we want to emphasize all three facts, right? So they come in the room and the guy says, you know, hey, I've been looking at porn and, you know, here's what I've been doing. And we say, you need to stop that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's find a way to help you stop. Right? So we talk about some pragmatic things that he can do to stop looking at pornography. Is that the end of the battle? No. Why is he looking at it? Well, it could be a thousand reasons why he's looking at it. I need to figure out why he's looking at it. That's the heart motive, and I need to address that issue with mind renewal. You need to change the way you're thinking about your desires. And then instead of looking at the pornography, as your mind is being renewed, let's find a new thing to do instead of that. And so we're thinking about pragmatic ways where he, leans, he learns to stop being self-serving, which is what pornography is, and to be other-serving and pouring his life into others and stop wasting his life with uh, this thing that is self-serving. So we're constantly dealing with all three aspects of the sanctification process and helping them in very practical ways. As I'm doing that, I want to clearly distinguish between divine directives and human suggestions. A divine directive, abstain from immorality. Stop it. Human suggestion, get covenant eyes and install it on all of your devices. That's not God's command. That's a way to implement God's command, but that's not God's command. And I want my counselee to see the difference between what God has commanded and what I'm suggesting. Because there's a thousand ways to apply abstain from immorality 
And I want him to hear, this is what God says, and this is one of the ways I might do it, or a thousand of the ways I might do it, but that's not God's directive. This is God's directive. And all these things are merely suggestions or means by which I might be able to do that. Does that make sense? Um, the, honestly, this is, preachers will sometimes get themselves in trouble, and I've done this myself, where you're making application and making suggestions about ways to do it, and it, it comes across as divine fiat, thus says the Lord, and it's not true. It might be a wise thing to do, it might be a helpful thing to do, but it's not something that God commands, and we just want to make sure that when they walk out of the room, they know the difference between Terry suggests and God demands. And there is a big difference between those two. Um, Instruction should be biblically appropriate. Um, The content should address the counselee's problems, needs, conditions, spiritual maturity, receptivity, personal background. So we want to we want to address everything about them, right? We want to address the reason that they're coming to you for help. We, we're coming to you because we fight all the time. Well, I don't want to ignore that. Is that the real issue? No. But it is the manifestation of the real issue, and so I want to deal with that. I want to help them so that they're not throwing stuff at each other anymore. Um so I want to help them with how to do that. But I also want to address the, the spiritual reasons, the motives, the desires that are driving their sin. I want to address them according to their spiritual condition. Are they believers or unbelievers? If, they're an un, if it's an unbeliever in the room, is that going to change the way I counsel them? Okay, so some of you are still in the post-lunch fog. <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to make a difference. In fact, I would say... Jay Adam, I'm stealing this from Jay Adams. I would say that until they are believers, you can't counsel them. Because they can't change. They're stuck. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They can do nothing else but sin. They can never do anything to glorify God because they're not in Christ. So anything I do for them before they come to Christ is called pre-counseling, which we might also call evangelism. Right? So... Um, so it's going to make a massive difference whether or not they're believers. So I need to figure out very quickly, are they believers or unbelievers? Are they spiritually mature or are they spiritually immature? immature? Hebrews chapter 5 helps us with that. We want to address them according to their emotional condition. So if they have a spouse die and you show up at the hospital an hour after the spouse has died, that's not the time to talk about the sovereignty of God. What's the time to do then? You better hug them and you better cry. And you better pray and you better say, God, we don't know, but we trust. Right? It's not a time for the deep theological lesson on the sovereignty of God. You'll have that opportunity later. But in that moment, just be sensitive to where they are and apply the appropriate scripture in that time. Address them to their receptivity to counsel. There is a time, Matthew Matthew 7, verse 6, where you stop counseling. Because to, to continue to counsel them is to throw pearls before swine. And for a long time, honestly, I just struggled with what does that look like? I mean, I just, I just don't ever want to give up on anybody. I just don't want to quit. I just want to keep going. And maybe, maybe, maybe they'll repent and... 
they'll turn around. But at some point, their obstinance and their rebellion against Christ is such that you are actually giving greater condemnation to them by continuing to persist with them. And you need to call them to repentance one last time and say, you're the swine. You need to find a gentle way to say that perhaps. (laughs) But your rebellion against Christ means I'm stopping. It would be dishonoring to Christ to continue while you give evidence of this sham of a life. Um, And honestly, I've... I've had, and you probably will, and some of you have already experienced it as well, multiple experiences where I've done that. Um, There is a time to back away from counsel. You want to counsel them according to their receptivity. The method of instruction should be appropriate. Um, We want to um, do things like connecting the Scriptures to their particular problems in their particular lives, right? So um, is the six days, the six literal days of creation important? Yes. Won't go into it, but it's massively important. If a couple comes to you for marital infidelity, are you going to go to Genesis 1 and unpack six days of creation? No, I hope not. I've heard of it being done, but I hope you won't do that. You want to address them with scriptures that pertain to their particular problems. So you want to connect the Bible to their lives. You want to minister the scriptures to them. Don't just dispense Bible verses. This isn't a dispensary where we're just throwing out all kinds of stuff and saying, well, I hope one of these helps you. We're ministering the Word of God. We're taking this book and we're putting it on the hurt of their lives and we are massaging it into their lives. And so one of my mentors said, walk into your session. The first time I met with him over the phone, he said, when your session started, was your Bible open on your desk? And I thought back, Yes, it was. So I was able to tell him, yes, my Bible was open. Good. And then he'll say, how many pages did you use? Uh, And I, I don't remember how I answered. He said, you get one page. Now, you can use both sides if you need to. But you get one page. Choose it well. And his point simply is, we're not just going to 16 different verses and just reading them. We're taking that one passage and we're, we're explaining it well and then we're teasing out all of the implications of that passage for their life. In that sense, it's like a Sunday morning sermon where your pastor is ministering the Word of God to you and he's taking two verses or four verses or six verses and he's unpacking them and it takes him 45 minutes if he's fast to undo this thing and minister the Word of God to you. And that's what you're doing in the, counseling word, in the counseling room. Remember, the goal of your instruction is to see them transformed into the likeness of Christ. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, 1 Timothy 1.5. 
That's the goal, to make them to be lovers of Christ and lovers of Christ's church. So choose your passage as well. The timing of the instruction should be appropriate. Uh, John 16:12, Jesus says, I'd have more to say, but you can't handle it. That's my paraphrase. Um, there are times when you're going to say, you know, there's, there's room for more instruction here, but we're not going to unpack everything now. Uh, development of counseling instruction. How do, you, how do you develop a repertoire of things to teach them? You should be developing a, topically, a topical work list of, of teaching passages, things that you have taught previously. When you teach something and you make notes, keep them. File them. Put them in your computer and keep them in places. I have, I have a file folder of counseling resources on my computer and I have sub-files sub under that. I think... The last time I looked, there were something like 146 topical files under the counseling resource folder. And within those folders, most of those folders had subfolders. And most of the folders, most of the individual folders had somewhere between 10 and 30 individual files of different things. Things I've taught, things that I've taken that other people have taught, resources I've found on the internet. I have thousands of files. And it's a great resource. And I think, okay, somebody's coming in for anorexia. I look at my anorexia folder and I see I've got seven things already there. I don't need to recreate the wheel every time. So cultivate uh, that list of resources for yourself. Learn and know key passages on key topics. There ought to be certain things. If I wake you up at 4 in the morning and I say, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, go. You ought to be able to spit it out. right? So that those things ought to be in your head. Um, to that end, study, read, acquire books. Please acquire books, theologies, commentaries, counseling books. Go to your pastor and tell, tell your pastor, I want to serve this church well. Will you buy me books? And we have for all of our counselors, our counselors have an annual book budget and we buy stuff for them. Um, we want them to be well equipped be familiar with other people and other research on certain topics. You're not going to know everything. I don't know everything. And so there are times when Keith and I have lunch at our staff meeting and I'll say, okay, I've got this counseling problem. Help me out. And I know you've dealt with this particular issue. Um, help me think through where I need to be going with this thing. Or I'll call another buddy who's um, done some things and seek advice. Hey, I'm, I'm stumped on this. Give me some direction. What would you be thinking? Uh, read books. I had somebody ask me the other day, hey, I've got this topic with this person. Can you recommend a resource? Um, so ask people about those things. Look for books and find resources. Really important. Never counsel what you have not known or st- what you do not yet know or have not yet studied. Never open the book and say, well, I think it means this. No, you got to know. God has spoken, He's spoken with clarity, but it's not our job to use it whatever way we want. We have to be confident that this is what the Word of God says. I tell people all the time, I probably say this 25 to 30 times a year, if not more. My goal on Sunday morning when I preach is, this book is inerrant. My job is simple. Don't mess it up. And that's my goal in the counseling room as well. It's no different. Just because I only have one person or two people instead of 200 doesn't mean I can take liberties with it. No, it's the inerrant Word of God. Don't mess it up. And if you don't know, don't pretend. If that sounds emphatic, it's supposed to. All right. That is...
giving, uh, that is um, providing instruction, giving homework, giving homework. Uh, we're going to have to move more rapidly here. Why do we give homework? Because it translates principles into action. You're going to have a counselee for an hour a week. How many hours in a week? How many hours are there in a week? 24 times 7, 168. You have them for one hour, which means there are 167 hours a week where you are not with them. And the 167 hours a week where the things that you are doing are either being reinforced or being mitigated against. And you want to give them things that will reinforce what you are teaching so that in the other 167 hours they're continuing to make progress towards the goal of Christ-likeness. So you give homework so that you can help them to see this is what this principle of God looks like in my life and you're going to help them to move in that direction. Giving homework also brings hope and anticipation of change from the beginning. They're walking into the room and going, my life's a mess and you give them some homework and they come back the next week and they've made progress. And you told them to read um, three chapters twice. You told them to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, twice that week. And they only did it once, but it's the first time they've read their Bible on their own in six months. That's progress. And they've memorized a verse. They didn't do that since they were sixth graders in Awana. And they've made progress. And one time with their wife, they held their tongue that week. Progress. And you want them to see that change can happen even from the very beginning. It puts a responsibility for change on the counselee. So I've got a responsibility to build into that counselee. That's Colossians 1.28. But the implementation happens on his account, right? Um, so he's got to do the growing and maturing and obeying on his own. So when Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, that's his job. And homework helps him to see that's my responsibility to walk worthy of, of my calling, my position in Christ. Terry can't do that for me. Keith can't do that for me. The other counselors can't do that for me. I have to be obedient. It's my responsibility. And if I don't do it, it's my fault, not their fault. Um... Talk alone is counterproductive to lasting biblical change. So you'll get counselees that come in and they just want to talk and they just want to vent their problems and vent their frustrations and they walk out and they say, oh, I just feel so much better having relieved this. And they come back in and you say, okay, here's the biblical truth that we've talked about today and here's some ways to implement that. Here's your homework for the week. Come back next week, same time. They walk back in the room. Did you do your your homework? No, it was such a bad week. Let me tell you what happened. And they just dump everything that happened. What is that? That's an evangelical confessional booth where they are just trying to find absolution for their sin and their problem without change. And if all you're doing is listening to the confessional, you've not helped them. Now you want to listen, you want to gather the data, but you want to help them to see the connection between this book and what they're doing on Tuesday afternoon. And giving them homework will help to do that. It clarifies expectations. It's your responsibility, not mine. It continues counseling between sessions. So all my, all my homework does one of two things. It either builds on what we've talked about in that session 
or it anticipates what I'm going to talk about in the next session and prepares them to hear that and begin acting on that and create receptivity for what we're going to talk about, talk about next week. So I'm either building or anticipating, always. Homework is always either building or looking forward. And that gives continuity between sessions. It provides data for future counseling, right? So they come back and say, hey, um, tell me three ways that you loved your wife this week in ways that you've never done before. Oh, I did this and this and this, right? Oh, how did that work? How did she respond, right? And he says, oh, she did this, she did that. And now I've got data based on the homework and it can help guide our direction for the next session. Or sometimes they come back and they haven't done the homework, Or sometimes they've come back and they've done all kinds of more homework. I had one counselee. This is the only time I've ever done this. I said, um, I want you to memorize. I can't remember what the first memory verse was. I want you to memorize these two verses. Okay, got it. Comes back. He memorized six, literally. Like one before the two and then three after. It's like, wow, that's impressive. And so the next week he comes back. Um, I said, okay, I want you to memorize this verse. The next week he comes back, he's memorized four. He was always like doubling, tripling, quadrupling the number of verses that I told him to memorize. And you think, that's really sweet. And then I realized, why is he doing that? And as we talked about it, it flowed out of perfectionism and a, and, and a desire for self-righteousness. And the things that he was struggling with were oriented around this perfection. I've got to have a perfect this, a perfect this, a perfect this, and his overachieving in Bible memory was simply another manifestation of it. So my assignment became this. I want you to memorize these two verses and only these two verses. Because it's not about demonstrating self-righteousness, it's about conforming your heart to Christ and leaning on His righteousness. So... His homework is giving me... How he's doing his homework is giving me more data about him, right? Um, Giving homework aids and showing who is serious about changing and who's not, right? So they do the homework, you have a counselee. They don't do the homework, you don't have a counselee. They show up every week, but they're not doing their homework. They're not a counselee. Um, Daily practice is what produces growth and change. Keys to effective homework, you've got to be specific. Randy Patton, one of my mentors, says, people do not change in fuzzy land. Be clear. What do you want them to do? Um, I've given you some homework samples where I hope there's some clarity there that you'll see. We're pretty specific, the kinds of things we're asking for. Address both knowledge and action. We want, we want them to address both mind and Duty. We want them to have mind renewal actions and put off, put off, put on actions. So I have, when I'm mentoring people, I have them go through their homework list. I say, okay, let's look at, let's look at the homework. You give them four things to do this week. I want you to put a T or a D behind each of the, beside each of those. Is it thinking T or doing D? And so they mark it. What do you think most of what assignments are? Where, Where do you think they fall? Thinking or doing? thinking because it's really hard to show them what to do you've got to work really hard at the doing and um and so they'll say well that was that that's a d no that's a bible study that's a t that's transforming your mind just because you write something down doesn't make it doing right it's an action 
You know, what does it look like when you do it at Kroger? That's a doing. So um, we're, we're wanting to address both of those things for them, both mind and action. Assignments should address presenting problems as well as the heart issue, right? So remember that chart we looked at yesterday about the heart, both inner man and outer man. Your assignments should reflect um, change and transformation in both of those areas, inner and outer man. Um, Assignments uh, should reinforce what was just taught or anticipate what will be taught. We've already talked about that already. So, you know, if I... If I'm in Matthew uh, 7, 24 to 27, uh, about um, being receptive to the hearing of the Word of God, my assignments are going to reflect that. I'm probably going to have them memorize something from that passage, and then I'm going to give them a homework assignment or two that relate to that passage to reinforce their need to be obedient to the Word of God. Assignments should be measurable. So um, this week, um, I know you have... Difficulty with your wife, and I know that y'all have been in conflict. So this week, um, I want you to be nice to your wife. Well, is that is that a good goal to ha- for him to have to be nice to his wife? Yeah. He shows back up on Wednesday afternoon next week. How am I going to measure that? Uh, were you nice to your wife that last week? Yeah. Well, how do I know? Right, so I want to do things that will give quantity that are measurable. So I will say um, something like, this week I want you to make a list of 25 ways to serve your wife. And they always complain about that. What they don't know is next week I'm going to say, do you make the list? Yes, great, let me see it. I'm going to make a copy of it. Okay, now I'm going to give it back to you and I want you to write 25 more ways. <laughs> You can do it, I promise. Now, from that list of 25 ways that you can love your wife, I want you to pick three this week and do three of those things that you've identified that you can love your wife that you don't normally do. So do you normally take out the trash at night? Yeah, most nights. Okay, that one doesn't count. Keep taking the trash out, but you've got to find a different thing to do. Do you normally do the dishes? Oh, no, I never do the dishes. Okay, that's one you can do. Right? So we're talking about those kinds of things. Be nice to your wife. It might be compassionate. I want you to keep track of all the times you use profanity against your wife this week. And so next week when we show up, what am I going to ask? How many times do you use profanity or vulgarity against your wife? Oh, four times. Okay. Is that more or less than last week? Uh, it's more, actually. Okay, we got work to do. Because you're not taking seriously the responsibility to love and nurture and care for your wife, right? So we want to be um, specific and measurable in what we do. We want to review the homework. The next session, one thing you don't want to do is assign homework and then don't check it. Because then they think, well, this really isn't important to him. He doesn't care. And so... um, so you want to be sure to review all the homework. If you assign it, you need to check it. They'll only do what you expect them to do. And they'll only do, they'll only, um, they'll only do that when you inspect uh, what you have expected from them. Assign homework with the end in mind. And by that, I simply mean, what do I want him to look like at the end of the counseling process? And I'm going to assign homework accordingly. 
So honestly, typically the kinds of things I'm thinking about are how can I orient his life around spiritual disciplines? What are the key things that he needs to do in his life that he isn't doing now? So that's going to be oriented around Bible intake, Bible reading, Bible memorization, theological intake, reading things besides just the Bible that will build into his heart and soul, corporate worship, service, ministry, evangelism, those kinds of things, prayer, and those become the context of my homework because that's what I want him doing at the end. So when he graduates, I've got this picture in my mind of what he looks like and I'm assigning homework with the goal of getting him to that end. Um, So assign homework with the end in mind. And assignments, again, should clearly distinguish between biblical mandate and biblical wisdom. That's another way of saying, is it my my, my suggestion or God's command? Uh, Goals for homework, ponder the truth. Um, We want them thinking about the truth. We want them casting down idols, thinking about what are the idols in their hearts. We want them focusing on others, and we want them resting in Christ. Um, So make sure that your homework is addressing all of those kinds of things. Again, we're talking about inner man and outer man, this interplay between the two. Um, Essential areas of homework. I've essentially kind of run through that already. Bible reading, Bible memorization, church attendance, Small group accountability, men's and women's ministry, home groups, those kinds of things. Collateral reading that addresses the issue uh, for uh, the counselee. And something specific to do, some kind of service that connects truth to life. And all of these things you want to be connected to hope. You want to give them hope. I can change. It doesn't need to persist in being this way. Um, I think I've given you about 10 different samples of homework assignments. Are those in your notes? Good. So we'll just skip through this. Uh, You can look through that at at the end. Where does homework failure, how can you evaluate, what do you do with homework failure? Um, A failure to accomplish homework or having complications that arise from doing what was required in homework can set a pattern for failure So, in the counseling process. So we want to make sure that they're doing the homework and they're doing the homework the way we've assigned it, just so that we set them on the right trajectory towards successful counseling. Uh, we've talked about this already. Um, some questions to ask. Oh, I'm sorry, we're... I'm, ahead of myself in my notes. We want to make sure the assignments are clear, simple, measurable, achievable. So if someone says, uh, Pastor, I don't read well. I'm dyslexic. Um, I've never liked books. Since I graduated from high school, I don't think I've read a single book in my life. I'm 42 years old. So handing him Wayne Grudem is probably not what you're going to want to do. Right? So we've got pamphlets, and I'll hand him a pamphlet, and I'll say, read the first six pages. And if he does that, it's probably more than he's read in months. So I need to do something that's attainable for him. Don't set the bar so high that they can't reach it, and they get discouraged. Give them something that they can manage, that they can build on, and eventually you'll give them the whole pamphlet, and they'll read the whole pamphlet, and maybe... In a couple of months, you can give him a book, and over a series of eight weeks, he reads through an entire book for the first time in his life and, uh, and be transformed by it. So make sure that the assignments are achievable. 
If an assignment is particularly difficult, can you reassign it in smaller portions so there's likely to be success? That happens to me all the time. I tend to be a little bit aggressive in counseling or in, uh, in, in homework. So I just dial it back and make it simpler, make it smaller, divide it up so that they can achieve it. Other questions to ask um, if there's failure to accomplish homework, is it because it was too much or is the counselee really not a counselee? And time will reveal whether or not uh, which, which category they're going to fall into. Is there hope in the counselee? Maybe, maybe they're looking at the homework and they go, this is useless, this doesn't connect to my problem. And it's not hopeful for them. So uh, redo your homework so it becomes hopeful. Is the counselee immobilized by fear? And that's why they're not doing the homework. If the counselee is towards another person, if the homework is towards another person, has the broken relationship genuinely been reconciled through repentance and forgiveness? Or have they not done what they haven't done because the relationship still isn't fixed and they're not doing it because it's not right? Well, then you need to go back and seek reconciliation and then give the other homework for them to do. Um, is the counselee genuinely a Christian? Sometimes they're not doing it because they're really not in Christ and you're asking them to do things that only Christ can accomplish in them. Actions to take uh, in the event of failure, call sin, sin, right? That's always what we want to do in every circumstance, but sometimes the lack of following through on homework is just rebellion, and you need to call it that. Assure the counselee that in the providence of God, their failure to do homework can be turned into a step forward. It's not the end of the road, right? It's just part of the process. If the counselee has shown progress in fulfilling other assignments, agree on a way to clarify the, the assignment, extend the deadline. Sometimes you're just going to shelve it and say, you know what, I thought this would be a good thing. Obviously, it's not helping you, so let's, let's rethink how to address this issue in your life and what that might look like. If the counselee has not shown progress in fulfilling other assignments, uh, sometimes it can, be end, it can be best to end the session and say, you know what, you guys haven't done this homework, you haven't done the homework for three weeks, we have 45 minutes, I want you to go across the street to Subway, I want you to get a drink, and I want you to spend the next 45 minutes working on this homework assignment together. And then next week we'll talk about it. So um, sometimes you're just going to end that session early and send them out and have them do the homework elsewhere. If failure to do homework is consistent, it may indicate you do not have a counselee and counseling should be suspended. I'm really slow to pull the trigger on that one, but um, that is something that you want to be uh, aware of. And then celebrate the victories. Listen, when they're doing things in the homework and things are changing, you ought to be their biggest cheerleader. You ought to be telling them every week, there is no one that is happier for you than Christ, other than Christ than I am for your successes. There's no greater cheerleader in your life than I am apart from Jesus Christ. You ought to be celebrating that. Some resources for homework, all kinds of things, uh, booklets, uh, Jay Adams has booklets. There's tons of booklets. Everybody's producing them now. They're really helpful. The CBCD resource database. We have about 60 podcasts, I think, we've done on all kinds of different topics. Those are great resources. Um, so avail yourself of those blogs um, and a variety of other things, including the ACBC website, study guides and books, your own study guides that you're producing, your own resource folders of things you're compiling. So all of those are going to be means by which you can provide homework for others. Okay, last break, last opportunity to obey Christ and go buy books at the bookstore. <laughs> because you want to be good counselors, right? 
All right, we'll see you in 15 minutes.